I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro, And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hi, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going on your end? You know, it's going good. You know, trapped in the house with three kids, driving me nuts. It's a lot. My husband, it's just a lot of crazy. Yeah, my plants have been driving me nuts. I've just been like moving them around in the morning <laughs> to make sure they have the most optimal sunspots. It's really stressful. But, uh, you know, so oh I kind of understand what you're going through. <laughs> Reporting live Life from Corona. <laughs> quarantine, lockdown. There's a lot of amazing things going on in the real world, especially the online world, especially with artists. Artists, so many of them are just blowing up like crazy online on Instagram, right? There's so many beautiful things they're making. There's so many conversations they're having. They're inventing all these new things. They're, they're jumping on um, all kinds of, you know, webinars and saying yes to everything. It's it's pretty cool. I've seen some pretty innovative things. You know, they say uh, scarcity is the mother of creativity or something along those lines. So when those checks dry up, people start inventing all sorts of stuff and I, I'm living <laughs> for it. I'm like, wow. It's also a period of rest and reset. So with the the downside of losing gigs left and right, there's also this moment of calm of being able to kind of have license to be experimental creatively. I agree. When I was a little girl, I desperately wanted to be an artist. I mean, I was an artist. I mean, my mom said I was an artist ever since I had a crayon on my hand. I was always making stuff, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, when you're a little, little kid, you don't know you're an artist. You don't think of yourself an artist. You're just doing things. But as I started getting older, I was like, oh, my God, all these people are making this great art. And I wanted to I wanted to be like that. I will say that as a child, I was shy, intimidated. And I was also I also grew up in a very, very segregated neighborhood after I, I left High Park. My mother, my mother moved us to um, Beverly, That's extremely segregated. <laughs> I know you're from Beverly. You're younger than I am, so you didn't experience some <laughs> yeah. of the things I went through, girl. Oh, I'll tell you right now. On. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I was in a lot of art classes, and I was intimidated. I was the only brown girl in my art classes. There was there were no brown teachers. Even though I, in my spirit, I was, I was creative, I just, I felt afraid. I was really scared. And, you know, Beverly is very um, Catholic, so... Um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, girls from Mother Macaulay, place like that. They were in theater. And whenever I got on stage, I was terrified. So, you know, I tried theater. I tried dance. I could not dance at all. So, you know, it didn't work for me. And then I found visual art, but also experienced too much technique and too much direction, right? The teacher basically holding my hand and, and telling me how to paint or how to draw or how to do this and that. And so, you know, for an artist, that's that's difficult. And that might not have been a good teacher for me. Um but I did finally get an experience when I when I got to high school. And and don't get me wrong, I was in all kinds of art classes. And even in High Park at the High Park Art Center, I was in, you know, animation illustration classes. And so it wasn't, it was, it wasn't all bad. I had great experiences. But I finally got to high school and I had this great teacher, Mr. Bruno. And um it's the first time I actually discovered what I would call at the time it was commercial art. And I didn't even know it existed. But 
the project that I worked on was I, I started um, um, hand lettering one of the perfume bottles that was on um, that was in my house, and I started doing like endless hand lettering. It's kind of like there were boys back in those days that were lettering Kiss logo. I was actually lettering perfume bottles. And anyway, I figured out working with Mr. Bruno at Whitney Young High School that I thought, oh my God, I, I think there might actually be something here. And he saw some talent in me that, and and it became a thing. And then I went to college and it kind of faded a little bit in my mind in college, but then I somehow was trying to figure out what I wanted to major in. And I walked into the art school intentionally, of course, and I said, oh, let me try music. And that was a total failure. So I couldn't read, although I appreciate it. And then I discovered the visual identity and brand program in my college. And I was like, oh my God. And so I prepared a portfolio and um, got into the got into the uh, art school. And I graduated at the top of my class. And I literally graduated from school and had so many people wanting to hire me out of school. Um, so it, it's been really interesting. I didn't see myself as, a, as an entrepreneur artist for mm-hmm. a while. Um, but, um, and that's kind of why I thought I wanted to talk to somebody that's actually in the field of art, that's practicing art, that's doing art for a living. Um, did you have any artistic experiences when you went to school? What was it like for you? Yeah, I, I was always pretty artistic, but my parents were very, uh, math and science focused. So even though I had this artistic side to me, it w- I was never able to really pursue the lines of artistic education that I wanted to. Uh, nor was I really exposed to art as a, a functional job or functional business or means of, of income in the real world. So that was always very abstract to me. But yeah, I, I think that art has definitely always been a part of everything that I do. I've always tried to instill it in every aspect of my work, even in the science part. Thinking about what you're saying about you know looking for nurturing as a young artist, I'm reading this book right now called Mastery. And it's really interesting because it details how people go from being in a house with their parents or in their current environment and then one, realizing what their true calling is or what it is that they have a passion for and then moving away from that into seeking things like apprenticeship and then gaining this autonomy and then ultimately finding a stride to go towards what we know as mastery. So no real art education, but I I found my way there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I I suggest... Since you started working for Burke Creative, you have blossomed into a commercial artist, a space that you didn't necessarily recognize until Mm -hmm. now, and you're killing it. Nice. Thanks. I am personally excited today because our guest is an amazing artist. I met her because one of my children's an artist, and I kind of felt like his needs were not being met at elementary school. Um, His work ethic and his abilities exceeded what the school could really manage, And they definitely don't have a robust and complex art program at Chicago Public Schools in general at scale. So I called the CPS Art Education Department and I said, hey, I need a referral. I got a kid. He's really smart, but he's super, super creative. I need some help. I'd like for him to be involved in some advanced summer programming um, over the summer. And, you know, when he's when you're in eighth grade or seventh or eighth grade, there's not a whole lot of of, of adult like instruction. You're pretty much doing cut paper if you go to like the Chicago Park District. Um, so I got a list of artists across the city that work with Chicago Public Schools. And it was really crazy because um, I found Jackie Kazarian um, on the list and I went and I looked for her online 
And she had an online presence, which was terrific. I thought, wow, she's the only one that does because the other artists that I was looking for didn't really have a really good, beautiful website like she did. And I, and I called her and I said, oh, I found you on the CPS list. She goes, what list? <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. I'm like, well, I don't know how you got on their list, but you're on the top list of top artists in Chicago that know how to teach you know, people how to become an artist. Jackie Kazarian's paintings, Works on Paper and Installations, explore how we perceive space and color. Her works combine painting and drawing with screen printing, stamping, and staining to form complex structures imbued with emotional content. Kazarian's work has been included in numerous national and international collections and has been exhibited worldwide in galleries and museums in the United States, Spain, Armenia, Kuwait, and Syria. Kazarian has also collaborated with dancers and musicians to create theatrical works for performance. Jackie has served as an art envoy for the U.S. Department of State, presenting solo exhibitions and workshops in Syria and Kuwait. She taught painting and drawing at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for 10 years and has been offering Shiburi dyeing workshops to women in the Inglewood and Woodlawn neighborhoods of Chicago. Jackie was a 2009 fellow of the Ellen Stone Bellick Institute for the Study of Women and Gender in the Arts and Media at College Chicago, Columbia. Welcome, Jackie. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. I want to understand your parents. Did they instill creativity? Are they artists? My parents were not artists. Uh, they were the children of immigrants, and they were uh, both teach started out as teachers. And my mother was a teacher for her whole life. And um, the creative person in our in my repertoire, well, was probably my grandmother, who was musician. She was a piano player and played parties. And, um, but I also had a grand, my other grandmother, well, actually, now that I think about it, my other grandmother um, did needlework that was fantastic. And actually, I've, um, I've done some work about that needlework using her patterning in my paintings. What was, what was the earliest moment where you realized that you had creative inclinations? You know, I for me, it was always just that I loved it. it I didn't really think I was gifted at all. Um, it was Joy Neasley really knew how to draw a horse in, you know, third grade. And I really wanted to be Joy Neasley. So I knew good, uh, I knew talent when I saw it, but I didn't think I had it. But I also really worked hard at it and tried to, you know, I remember when I figured out how to do a tulip so that it, you know, and draw a tree with branches that look natural and things like that. I thought it was a trick and uh, I didn't have it and I just wanted to learn it. So does that mean that you were practicing art all the time or making it all the time? I was, uh, I was, I was doing a lot of drawing and it was my favorite thing to do, but I never thought I would be, I never thought, <clears throat> to become an artist because in my household, you have to, you go to school to get a job and you don't get a job as an artist. So that was, uh, I was dissuaded from uh, going into art. I'm really curious. What did you study in school? Zoology. Nice. I went, I originally wanted to become a, a medical illustrator. That's what my thought. I thought I like science. I like art. I'll combine them and be a medical illustrator. So I went to my parents and said, I, there, there were, at that time, there were like three programs in the country. 
one of them, it was at University of Illinois. And I went to my parents and I said, I think I'm going to become a medical illustrator. And and my father was like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. He actually used that phrase. You can always do illustration on the side. And so... So I went to school, you know, to, and was, I said, okay, then I'll be a doctor. So I went to school thinking I would be a doctor instead. And because I really liked science and uh, it turned out that um, I really liked all of the weird craziness that's in the biological world. There was a moment, because I studied molecular and cellular biology, where we get to the, you know, there are these things that crawl along the DNA and they open it up. And then I start stepping back to think about, okay, so we're all made of cells. All of our cells have DNA. There are all these proteins that are walking along. And then there was a moment where I was like, this is too micro. I'm going to lose it. I can't, <laughs> I can't keep talking about these things so specifically that are so small. I'm never, I'm not, I'm not going to come out of this. <laughs> You know what I mean? Nice. We're, to explain yes, it Jackie to someone, does know what you I mean. Do. Actually, I yes, did she does. Of molecular interactions what you mean. for the first my first year in grad school. That's all I did was molecules. So I was always really drawn to sort of things that broke rules in science. What 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 was the trigger though that that sort of helped you take that very deep philosophical scientific view of things? You know, you're looking at molecules and cells and you're digging deep and you could get lost easily, right? And and never come back. It's almost like from Ant-Man, you know, the subatomic world or something. You know, how did you go from that to becoming an artist? And maybe it took you years to do that. I, yeah. So uh, when I graduated from college, to I wanted to work at a lab in Stanford. Um, I went to Stanford and a friend of mine was at Stanford and there was a research center right next to Stanford in Menlo Park. And I thought I wanted to work for, um, what was it called? OSHA? Maybe it was OSHA. And, um, and I couldn't get a job in the field because I liked being out on a boat. I was in marine biology by that time. And so I, uh, I got a, a regular job in publishing for Sunset Magazine. And while I was in Sunset, I was drawn to the illustrators of the magazine and the art department there. And they had, they were doing these great figurative drawing workshops at night. And so I joined them. And uh, eventually I, I, had a, I had a woman there, a friend who uh, helped, took me out to dinner because I uh, was taking night classes in different schools around the Bay Area I went to five different art programs around the Bay Area, chasing teacher, teachers of teachers. And um, eventually, I, we went out to dinner, and I really wanted to take the leap, but I was afraid because I thought, I'll never make a living. And so she said, well, what are you afraid of? And so she, I went through my list. I said, you know, what if I get sick? There's public health. What if, you know, what if I, you know, don't have a place to stay? You have friends. You'll always have a place to stay, you know, stuff like I went through all the the real nitty gritty, like, you know, how do I eat? That kind of stuff. Because <laughs> you're a scientist. Yes. You need the facts. I have to get all the variables. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually she, of course, you know, said, you just have to do it and don't worry about it. 
it'll, you'll figure it out. And so I did. And then I started applying to grad schools. Why are you an artist now? It's the way I communicate and it's the way I work out. It's the way I work out my ideas, my feelings, my, it's the way I integrate with the world. Um, It's always helpful to hear why people are an artist. I mean, if I speak to musicians, they, they say things like, I can't help it. I can't not play my guitar. And that to me is a benchmark of if you're an artist or not. Can you stop or not? You've been everywhere, all over the world, right? I'm, I'm trying to understand what was your role or what is your role with the U.S. Department of State? How in, in the world did that come up? Because I'm an artist and I never would have considered any environment like that at all. Yeah. What is it? Well, that was really serendipitous because um, I just knew someone. uh, The U.S. State Department has part of a lot of what they do is they have education and cultural programming all over the, you know, all over the world. And, um, you know, we know the jazz musicians during when they were uh, in the 30s and 40s were going over to Europe. And, um, and that's where they made their living. And so, and, and the cultural exchange has been, um, in some of those areas like Syria, when I was in Syria, some of those areas, when, when the political situation is dire and they're not communicating very well and they're not getting along, the education and cultural programming sort of takes over and it becomes the, it really becomes the, it becomes the most important thing in that the, you know, the attache or the diplomats are doing. So, but the way I got to it is there was a woman who had been to Syria, worked in the Department of Cultural Affairs in Chicago. And her name is Valentine Judge. Valentine was... The, oh, sure. Do you know Valentine? Okay, I remember. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Valentine had been to Syria and in exchange with Chicago and Syria... Through, I think it was through Sister City when we had a Sister City program, and you're you're, you're just naming all the hits, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> you're naming all the all the oldies with goodies from yeah. Chicago that are like defunct and Those gone now. I mean, it's breaking my heart. Stop. Actually, I know. <laughs> when when was that? Oh God, it was in the early '90s. That was Mayor Daly and Maggie Daly. They were super mm-hmm. art. They were just art people. She knew about what my work through that program and she was in the hood. So she had seen my work. They were uh, looking for, um, when they reopened to Syria, they started, the program stopped because our, we weren't communicating. Um, we didn't have an um, ambassador to Syria. And, but they were going to reopen this program of an exchange, having an artist, an art envoy program. So I was the first one to go back when they started the program up again. And she just put me up, nominated me for the position. I went there and it was an amazing experience, as you can imagine. This was three months before the war started. It was, it was just really in, an intense experience. Actually, I just found old video from that trip going uh, where I went through the, the back alleys of Damascus into these ad hoc galleries that some of the, I taught workshops and the, they were art students and the art students took me, you know, they were got, showing me the ropes in um, how they were getting their work 
you know, sharing their work with one another. It was really incredible. So the person who was there, who was the cultural attache, she eventually went to Kuwait and after Syria, and she went, had a few other tours, but she eventually went to Kuwait and she contacted me and said, are you up for another one? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. So that's why I did Kuwait too. I love this because I think that artists don't understand the opportunity that exists like this for cultural diplomacy. Um, There's no way that a lot of artists understand the reach of the United States Department of State and how much impact they have not only overseas, but even with artists in the United States. Is it a, what is, why is it, is it a secret? I mean, did you, would you have had any idea about this opportunity to do this were it not for your relationships in Chicago, which are with it, which at the time, by the way, were very powerful, very art culture neighborhood focused, right? Mm-hmm. Um, very interconnected. Is there any? How would how would anybody in the world know about this today? As an as a young artist, how would they have this opportunity? How would they get it? You mean to work through the State Department? Yes. Well, yes. You can go there. I mean, if you just Google. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If you just go there and the State Department and do um, Art Envoy, I'm sure if you Googled Art Envoy and um, cultural programming in the State Department, I mean, they have lots of programs there. And actually, they they have uh, a whole list, that, like all of the envoys that have gone out, they've now have a database where you can actually look at the who the work of the people who've gone and see what where they went and what they did. And do you have relationships? I mean, have you built a community around this? And and I ask because communities are built so differently um, in the art and visual art world, right? Do you, are you connect? Is this a cohort? Are you connected with people that have done your work similar, similar in similar ways in different countries? Are you connected with these artists? Not really. No. Oh, really? No, no. I'm not. I mean, I'm some of the people that were in Damascus, like there's one person in particular who's now lives in Madrid. Um, I, I, every time I go to Madrid, I go and visit him. Um, he's a really wonderful, he's a printmaker. And, um, and there's, um, on the tour to Damascus, I went through Lebanon. I met um, the wife of someone I went to college with, and she's a painter and she's a wonderful painter. Very similar sensibility to my work. And so I communicate with her, but to tell you the truth, the, the whole, the, the Damascus thing um, was a little nerve wracking because when things shut down, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole detail, but um, I lost my computer there and, and it was really weird the way I got it back. Like it ended up in the police department. They, like I left it in a cab I got home, I went to uh, like a big uh, opening. There was a women's art festival in Aleppo and I left the computer in the cab. I got to my hotel and realized that I had forgotten it. And I went to the, they called, I told the person at the the hotel and uh, five minutes later they called me and they say, oh, we have your computer. (laughs) The police have it. Go get it. <laughs> were you like freak? You were crying and you were you went insane for a moment, didn't Petrified. you? Petrified. And after that, when I got back to the United States, I got all these very weird. I knew that something was going on with. They had tapped into my Facebook. 
And so I, for, for a while, I, I just couldn't, I just didn't feel, I felt like I was going to endanger people. So I didn't communicate with all these people. I was paranoid. <laughs> I, I admit it. I admit it. But, you know, I, I told my friend about this who worked, was a, a U.S. attorney and he said, oh yeah, they, they have everything that you had on that computer. Wow. They're like, hey, we oh, uh, found your uh, computer. Do you want it back? Now like, yeah. nah, you can keep it. <laughs> yeah, right. I can't imagine losing any of my electronics. That's I'm traumatized just hearing about that. You know, oh. but <laughs> oh, but they got I got it back. I should yeah, say. I mean, yeah. I did get it back. I staked out at the police station for three hours waiting for them to open up the next morning. It was hilarious, and uh, they made me sign a piece of paper saying that I was treated very well. <laughs> you were hesitant to have kind of an online presence at first. Is that what I'm hearing? I was hesitant to uh, have a real conversation with some of them. I had, I mean, I don't know if you want to go into this, but I, there, I, there was some strange things. Uh, when I was teaching the workshop in Syria, the students weren't accustomed to having teachers talk like they were accustomed to lectures and then the teacher leaves and then and says do this and then the teacher is not overseeing it and they didn't have crits and so when I came in and started giving the workshops I started doing crits you know critiques critiquing one another's work challenging people why'd you do this and they had never they hadn't experienced it and I had some little tense moments, but once we got through it, you know, it was fine. And the reporters were following me all over Syria. And one of the reporters... What reporters? Like the Syrian reporters? Yeah, the, the, yeah, Not- the papers. It was a big deal that I was there. I mean, it was like front page in the Damascus paper that, you know, I, that I was there. Why? Because, because it was Amer- the U.S., Okay. It was, it was right before the war. And, and it was, uh, you know, an opera, it was an event that in which the U.S. invited Syrian officials, the cultural affairs official, and Damascus was invited to the opening of my exhibition there in the museum. So it was a really big deal. And they were following me around and they were, you know, I had my cultural attache was handling the what they could ask me and whatnot. And did you love it? I loved it. I loved it. It was, it was amazing. Well, plus, you know, my, I'm Armenian. My grandmother had gone, uh, escaped a genocide in the Ottoman empire and went through Aleppo and Damascus. So, uh, you know, I went to the towns where she, you know, was a young girl. So that was, it was meaningful for me personally too. I'm a simple guy with wandering eyes. I wait goodbye, you let me go away. Away. This is my this is my world and this is my space and it has been for a long time. I mean I was involved in technology when I got my first job working at Accenture you know, which is all about everything online, branding and things like that. What, what, what in the world would you need a gallery for really? At, at any point in any career, at any juncture, whatever it is, why would you need a gallery? I'm not asking you to make the case for one either. I'm just saying as an art, from an artist's perspective, what is the benefit? I don't think it's really, you don't really have to have a gallery, but you do have to be connected to uh, people who are 
I mean, this is if you want to be in the world of fine, the fine art gallery, you know, have, being in the conversation about what's going on in the world of art. In, <laughs> there's a lot of different communities now. And there's a lot of galleries that will put up a show for someone, but they won't represent them, you know. So you don't really have to be with a gallery, but you do have to be engaged with other artists because, and people who are writing about art, I think critical attention and someone evaluating what's good and what's bad still is still important. Esther and I come from the world of public validation on social media, right? Or influencer influencer strategies or, you know, having a zillion followers on your on your Instagram page or your YouTube channel looking at you create in studio. I mean, that to me is money because the next thing you know, you might have someone like Nike calling, right? So, I mean, this is something I want to talk about a little bit later, but I find it really fascinating that you're tell you're describing a process that sounds like a journey of the artistic ego versus the journey of the artist who's trying to actually make a living at art. There's always been that tension between um, what you're doing aside from being paid to live and what you're doing, you know, just for uh, believing that there has to be worth in and of whether it's being paid for or not. So, and there's always been that tension. I know some really wonderful painters who are moving their entire market or they're basically creating because printing is so easy right now and the quality of printing is so good that they're completely moving into the printing market. You know, like What is the printing market? Like what do you mean? They're they're marketing they're they make a painting they have a reproduction. They create a series of prints of it that are archivally print, but they never touch it. They don't print it. They just send the image off and then they sell and then they commit to an edition. And then those editions are, or they're into licensing deals. Like I've done hotels, you know, licensing deals with hotels. They, they buy the rights to take my image, make prints and put them in every room. There's artists, a lot of artists who are actually really, you know, viable, really, really uh, artists that I admire, they, they do that market. Uh, just about everybody does that market now. You know, speaking of that, I'm interested to understand a little bit about how you are in that space, right? So you mentioned you've had commissions with hotels. I'm interested to know, are those the type of clients you like to work with? Do they give you direction? And is that a place that, you, that you're looking, that you're seeing opportunity to make money? Uh, they don't give direction. They buy, they, they basically, they it work, they work through art consultants and consultants show them a, 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 num, a stable of artists. And then the hotel, you know, they have a meeting and then they say, okay, we're interested in this, this, this person, this person. And then the consultant makes the licensing arrangement with the artist. And, uh, that's how, that's how it, it goes down. It's not a big money maker. Why not? Well, because you're you're not you're not selling prints. You're selling the rights to a print. So you know if you sell a thousand and hotels, you know they might put it in what you know sixty rooms. So you get you make, you know you might make a hundred dollars on a print. That's not much money. Wow, I'm 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 repulsed. <laughs> 
I can go on Instagram and look at your art. I don't have to go to a gallery. So it creates a, a cultural shift in how accessible things are, which is good. But at the same time, I see this phenomenon, and I could be wrong, of sometimes people paying less for art because it is so easily visibly accessible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, it's almost like going back to the beginning where your, where your dad said, you'll never make money as an artist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I'm, I'm wondering. I mean, how, I, I feel like U.S. Department of State is good money. I mean, what, I mean, money, exposure, attention is money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that was a while ago. I know there's still opportunities to do that today. Um, having exposure in a hotel is good exposure. As soon as we open up, back, uh, open up again, it's gonna, it's, it's great to have your work blasted all over hotels. It depends on the hotels, of course, um, but it's a big deal. You know, Esther's saying, you know, it's so available and so accessible now. How can you possibly advise um, an artist now that's coming out? I mean, you have years behind you, so you've got relationships that you can still tap and say, "I want to do this. Help me get there." I want to make this happen. I want to try to make money in this space. Tell me where to go. What are the paths now for a younger artist to do it? And you can reach into the examples you have with your own children who are also artists. Well, I think that uh, what I would say is that you have to figure out if you really want, if you really want to not move into commercial art. I, th- I still think if you want to move into not other people telling you what they want, out of out of you what you're doing if you want to go in that direction then i would say to them find another way to make money that's what i would say to people wow that's deep so a way yeah. to sustain yourself so that you can yeah do your art the way that you mm-hmm. want interesting yeah but then when you do the art that you want there's a fine line jackie between that being a hobby that you're toiling away in a basement or your studio and nobody can see it Versus converting that to a relationship with the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs, who then becomes your conduit to all kinds of opportunities on a global scale. Um, but I think that, you know, what I also say is don't do anything close to what your creative work is. Like make your money in a way that isn't going to interfere with your creative juices. Why? What? Because, because I think that you, it, you have to have like some sustenance, you have to sustain yourself, you know, for a long time, you have to be, you have to be your own champion and you have to be your own critic and you, and you, you know, you have to almost, um, you know, it's precious. You have to protect it from what what can happen with other people jumping in that you don't need to jump in. I mean, you want to invite people in. You want people when you're ready to present it and you're ready for feedback and conversation. I'm not saying that you should be an isolated artist. I'm just saying that you have to be, um, if you want to go that way, you have to really be protective of it. Mm. That's interesting because a phenomenon that we see because because of social media and influencers, some artists have become influencers themselves. And what has begun to happen with large brands, you know, the Nikes and Adidas of the world, is that they've begun to collaborate with artists online. And so an artist will come out with a clothing series or a shoe series that is in collaboration with with one of these larger brands. And 
of course, we don't know the back end of what's going on, but it seems like very uh, possibly treacherous waters because you have you and your art and then you have a number that may or may not be a worthy number, but there's a lot of other things like glitz and glamour and prestige and whatever that could kind of skew the perception. What is your opinion on working with brands like that? And do you perceive any possible pitfalls? What's your take on that? I don't have a problem with people branding an artist, you know, like, I mean, in, we don't talk about branding, you know, I don't talk about branding, but it really is branding. I mean, they say like, you know, why are you switching here? Why, you know, that you really have to have some consistency and people think about, you know, if you're going to dive into something, you're going to dive deep. Um, and people don't want to see one-offs from someone. They don't, they aren't going to believe you. And so that's, that's a form of branding, repeating things and finding all the, like the scientists <laughs> hitting it from all these different angles. You know, that's, that's a deep dive. It sounds like art education is important to you as well. And you and your husband have slightly different opinions about that. But I'm like your husband. I force my kids to play piano and to learn piano because I always say, look, if we end up being in the apocalypse, you can e- at least put a tin cup out there and play your guitar and you'll get some money. <laughs> Good luck you know getting the I mean? piano out there. <laughs> the piano, whatever. Help I mean, as long as you can read music, you can pick subway. up an instrument and play it. But, um, <laughs> um, but I, I, I love the community that you're building, but I also love that you're you have children that are of a completely different generation doing interesting things and collaborating with brands and understanding how to leverage technology effectively. Do you feel like the art education started at home or do you think it started in school or was it both? Oh, it definitely started at home. No doubt. I mean, you know, I had my studio in the garage in the back and I had a caregiver. And even when the caregiver would come over, I would sneak out and go into the back, but eventually they knew I was working. And it was really important for me to have them know that I was working and that it was important stuff that I was doing. Because I, you know, of course, you know, they learn by what you do. We have great clients at Berg Creative. One of them is the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts. And um, we work specifically with the education arm of the Kennedy Center and their whole purpose and, and guiding uh, forces, art education in the schools and in the communities and the neighborhoods at the political and the political system, everything. Um, do you make a case for art education? Do you feel that art education is valuable even for children that are not artistic? Yes, absolutely. Especially every child needs to be exposed to art in all of its forms. And I think it's really important. I think those concerts they take you out to, I think taking them to museums, I mean, all of that, if, if I had my way, you know, every week they'd be going to see art, some cultural thing. Um, I don't think that technically it's so important. You know, I don't think that, you know, you have to learn skills in education unless you're really interested. But I really think that exposure is really great to start conversations. You know, it's, it's, it's great talking to you, Jackie, because, you know, your involvement from early on in your career, you were a scientist and then you went to Stanford and, you know, somehow evolved into becoming an artist in all forms. Your kids went to Montessori, you met 
you know, the children and the, the parents of one of the world's biggest rock bands, Wilco. <laughs> you do festivals in the summertime in Wisconsin. Do you ever sort of look back and realize how many amazing things you're doing because you're an artist? You're not a one-note Jane. No, I'm not. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I feel like I could do any. I feel like I could do anything. I could figure out some whatever. That's what I feel like. Do you have a company that you're creating or that you developed to do these beautiful t-shirts using what is the t- process and technique called again? It's called shibori. It's a Japanese, basically a Japanese textile dyeing resist dye technique, and it's like tie dyeing. I, I, I like to say it's sort of like origami folding you know, the paper, Japanese paper folding and tie-dyeing at the same time. I've gotten as far as buying the domain name and the domain Congratulations. name. Congratulations. Uh, the domain name is Shibori. It's called Shibori Chicago. How can people reach you to find your website, your artwork? Do you have an, a public Instagram channel? Can people contact you to buy your work? What's the best way that people can reach you if they want to inquire? Yeah, they can reach me. Um, I have a website. It's JackieKazarian.com, J-A-C-K-I-E-K-A-Z-A-R-I-A-N.com. What is the last thing you saw or heard about any type of technology that surprised you or made you extremely happy? When I was little, I always wanted to have to live and to the day when you could wear one of those jet packs and 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 go and visit your friend across town. <laughs> and uh, you know, like it was I it was in cartoons and I said that I, I just hope that that happens when my lifetime and it's happened, but I've never worn a jetpack. It's happened. Yeah, I gotta go look that up. Yes, it you exists. haven't seen you I've haven't seen, seen those things. I've seen the water ones that you stand on. No, no, there's the one that you that they put on your back and you can fly. But and it's, it's like lo- rocket it's, fuel. Yeah. It's yes. Like, it's that sounds very <laughs> dangerous and hot. <laughs> so you have this thing of gasoline and fire shooting out from behind you. I don't Exciting. even know what kind no, of I don't fuel think it I is, would but... do it cuz I'm not sure everything every time I see it it's like they they look like this, you know. I don't want to stress oh, our yeah. medical system any more than it already okay. is. You got to have good posture and you have to be in shape okay. to use that thing. I'm telling also, you. Also fire I mean, resistant look... apparently cuz that <laughs> flame on those things never looked small. Yeah. I have to send you the video. Butt. It's pretty you cool looking. You, you have to have a small butt like Hank Hill <laughs> from King of the Hill. <laughs> because <laughs> it's got propane, propane accessories in it. Thank you to our audience for listening to the Honest Field Guide podcast. I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. I'm Jackie. And this is the Honest Field Guide. We'll talk to you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. E.